Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, August 13th, we are starting a new series here on Sharper Iron that picks up in the same context as the end of the book of Jeremiah. For the next two weeks, we will be studying the book of Lamentations in a series called Mercy for Mourners. If you've never read Lamentations before, you may be shocked by what you'll hear in its five poems. Jeremiah and the people of Jerusalem give utterance to what might have seemed unutterable, the horror, the misery that they'd known because of the catastrophe that was the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the death of the Davidic king, and the exile of the people of God. The pain is raw, and the prophet is not afraid to speak of the brutality of what he and the people had experienced and felt. These lamentations are uttered in the context of repentance. The people have sinned. They know they deserve the Lord's wrath. But these lamentations are also uttered in the context of faith. The people are not merely complaining, but they are crying out to the only one who can deliver them, the Lord their God. Today's text will introduce the book as a whole and study the first half of the first poem, Lamentations 1, verses 1 to 11. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Linnell. Pastor Linnell serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and a humbling experience to begin this book of Lamentations with, with you. Indeed. This is, I mean, it's one of those books where Lamentations is the correct title, no doubt. And and every time I sit down and look at this book and start to read it, I'm, I'm amazed at just how how much that title fits. And it maybe doesn't even, is not even a strong enough word. So as we prepare to, to look at this book as a whole, and the, the first part of chapter one today, what kinds of introductory material do we need to know? There's, I think there's quite a bit of context that's going to be helpful, not only for what we talk about today, but for this whole book. Yeah, and you know, I mean, as far as as far as even the name, like uh, in the Hebrew prior to the Septuagint, like the name isn't even Lamentations; it's just Oh How, which is more of like an exclamation of "uh" than anything else. And that's not some Hebrew scholars are going to get mad at me, but that's that's how I sort of read that. But yeah, Lamentations is it's the twenty fifth book in the Old Testament, and we have that located right between Jeremiah. And uh, and Ezekiel and Lamentations is a uh, it's a collection of five poems, and these poems are uh, written by uh, eyewitnesses to the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, and and the temple, uh, and the Babylonians are the ones that came in and and did that, and so this is written then during the seventy year period of exile, which begins there in five eighty six five eighty seven. Now the book itself doesn't claim an author, but our, our tradition holds that the book was written by Jeremiah. And there's arguments for and, and against that. Some people say that really this tradition comes from just kind of a misunderstanding of Second Chronicles 35. Uh, and in, in that uh, book and in that chapter, uh, 
it says that Jeremiah composes a lament over Josiah. But Lamentations doesn't lament Josiah. It, it laments Jerusalem herself. And so some people are a little weary because of that and some other things. But even still, there, is a, there, are, there are striking similarities to Jeremiah in Lamentations, both in style um, and in the way things are phrased. So, you know, the, the virgin daughter of Zion uh, as being uh, irreparably breached, we'll say. Uh, the appeal to the righteous judge for vengeance, um, and uh, the the expectation that the nations who rejoiced over Jerusalem's fall would themselves be destroyed. Those are those are all things that that they share, and so this tradition of Jeremiah being the author is not without merit. Uh, in the in the original sort of Hebrew order of things, Lamentations does does not come directly behind Jeremiah, but it's much later. Uh, in a section of the Ketuvim called the Five Scrolls. Um, but the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, moved Lamentations to its current location. The Latin Vulgate kept it there, and so our English Bibles continue that tradition. Uh, but the Septuagint and the Vulgate also added an introduction to Lamentations, which uh, reads, uh, it says, And it came to pass that after Israel was led into captivity and Jerusalem laid waste, that Jeremiah sat weeping, and lamented with his lamentation over Jerusalem and said, and then, you know, it begins, it begins sort of lamentations. And our English Bibles don't have that because it shouldn't be there, you know. But that's kind of how lamentations gets to be where it is and some of the tradition about its authorship. Go ahead. Well, as you say, all all very helpful, Pastor Linnell. I, I know another thing, and I, I if you've got other things to say, please do. Another thing that I, I know is important with the Book of Lamentations is there. You mentioned five poems. Why do you call them five poems, and what are some of the features of that Hebrew poetry? Yeah. So, what about the book itself, then? Right. So, like as I said earlier, Lamentations is it's a series of five poems that are written by eyewitnesses, or perhaps an eyewitness, right, Jeremiah, as it were, uh, to the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple, and these. Um, these the five chapters are are poems, and we'll talk about their structure a little bit. But these these poems are not in chronological order, and that means that they don't come like one after another. This happened, and then this happened, and that's and then this happened. But they do progress theologically uh, through sort of a, a way that the Hebrew people, Jeremiah, respond to God's judgment in this exile and in the destruction of Jerusalem. We'll talk about more on that in a minute. Now, the style of writing in these poems is very elaborate, um, and it, it just simply doesn't translate well. But it is um, completely undeniable just in their structure and the way that they're written that these are, these are five separate poems. And so first of all, uh, the first four poems are acrostics of the Hebrew alphabet. And what that means is that each stanza in the poem starts with A, B, C, D, only it's in Hebrew, right? So it's Aleph, Beth, Gimel, and so on. Additionally, um, there is a, a distinct uh, meter to the poem, and that meter is predominantly 3-2. And, and again, for those who really don't know kind of what's going on, um, he, you know, poetry, you've got lines and standards and stuff like that. And in Hebrew, you would call them something different. But this 3-2, what it has to do with is the stress or the accents that are placed on um, certain lines, certain colons um, within within these stanzas and, and structure. 
all of this is to say that basically it's it's a very sad and almost limping sort of rhythm to these things called a dirge. And it just doesn't translate well. But when you're looking at the text, you're like, oh, these are this is five sets, right? Five poems. Now those those five poems themselves, they make a bit of a chiasm, right? Or since it's Hebrew, we'll call it an aliphism. And what that and what that means is is that chapters one one and five sort of parallel each other, and chapters two and four sort of parallel each other, and then chapter three is really the obvious climax. And it's the climax not only in theme, but also it's the climax in structure. So you know how I said that it's like um, uh, it's this uh, this acrostic where it goes like Aleph, Beth, Gimel. Well, in in the third uh, poem. It's Aleph, 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 Beth, 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 Gimel, Gimel, Gimel. So, you know, it's it's really emphasized in its structure and length and everything else. And so, again, uh, when I say that they parallel each other, I don't mean that they say exactly the same thing. But they do um, have a, a similar theme in one way or another. So, like, chapter one is the destruction of the city, and chapter two is God's wrath on his people. It focuses on this. Chapter three is God's mercy, his redemption and deliverance. And then four sort of revisits God's wrath again, but it but it does so with with that grace in mind. It's it's revisiting this wrath, but the wrath is over. That's sort of the theme of this. And five revisits the destruction again, but it's also a prayer looking forward that the Lord would restore his city and, and his people. And so even the, the structure of these things and these poems are put together, it's just, it's incredibly elaborate. It's incredibly structured. It's, it's not just a, a collection of, you know, cute things to write. Uh, somebody put a tremendous amount of time and effort into structuring this. And again, this is back when they didn't have erasers. So, you know what I mean? Like somebody really did this. That's fantastic, Pastor Linnell. Very, very well laid out in terms of the introduction that you gave and putting that book forward. Again, that that one in five being parallel, two and four being parallel with chapter three standing as the center, not only in terms of the structure, but theologically as well with God's mercy. As you as you gave that introduction, and you've, you've already introduced some of that, but can you dig a little further into the themes that we're going to encounter in the Book of Lamentations? So when we when we read poetry, we, we need to keep a few things in mind, right? And when we're reading God's word, we need to keep a few things in mind. And the first thing is that words matter, right? Context matters. You, you can't simply make a text say something that it doesn't say. If Jesus says, this is my body, you can't then turn around and say, Jesus means this is not my body. Moreover, we have this census literalis unis est, yeah? And Can you what say that, that in means, English? Yeah, so really what that means is that there is there is one meaning to a text, and that meaning is the literal one, the one that comes from the words. So you can't just read a text and then claim to have some sort of vision that interprets it for you or gives you some sort of you know Gnostic secret insight. But this has often kind of been misused uh, to say that a text can't have layers, that a text can't be figurative when it is literally poetry, or that the intention of a text cannot be, at least in part, to elicit familiarity or connections uh, with other parts of the canon, or to paint pictures with words to be a typology for Christ. Um, this is God's word, and it is certainly more than poetry, 
but it's certainly not less than poetry. And so as we're reading in these, um, in, in these, these poems, the, the words that they use um, should elicit for you uh, a, not just sort of a, a, a painting, but also it should, it should take you there a little bit even if it is sort of emotionally, it's meant to be relatable. And emotions, emotions are not, in, uh, emotions are information, they're not instructions, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean that they're not information. Like, like this, is, this is meant to involve you. And it was, um, the, the Catholics actually had a really, I was reading lots of different commentaries. And by the way, most commentaries will spend a tremendous amount of time, kind of like we're doing, talking about the structure and the form and everything else and not so much time talking about the text, which I find is interesting. But, um, but one of these Roman Catholic commentaries, they said that a person is not so much engaged by lamentations as they are assaulted by it. Hmm. And, and that's kind of the point. You're supposed to be, in a sense, assaulted by it. You're supposed to feel that that sort of terror. And in this way, it's it's law and gospel that that really does cut true. And I I doubt very much that a person can engage that or or receive that um, intellectually, you know, apart from faith. I just don't think you're going to get it. Because if you if you are engaging this text and you're seeing what happens in the relationship between God and his people, and you don't have faith, why would you feel terror about that? I mean, maybe you're just incredibly empathetic, but I think there's a bit difference between, you know, oh man, those people must have really been scared, and I'm scared. Um, so in the beginning, I think that's very much what it's supposed to be. You're you're reading these first two chapters where um, where Jerusalem is presented as a widow, um, a, a widow who is in in uh, just really dire straits. Uh, the description of you know what's happened, the destruction of this temple, and then coming into chapter two, where you really are are confronted with not just the fear of God being angry, but the 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 almost nauseating regret of knowing that it was your fault and it was entirely preventable. There was absolutely no reason that this needed to happen except that you, you made those decisions, not in accident, but either in taking for granted, in carelessness, despising your Lord, whatever it was, that this is actually your fault. But then in the midst of those things and in the midst of that, not still not being hopeless because as terrifying as, as the Lord is, and he is, he is still a loving God. And, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, Jesus tells this, this story, he says, you know, um, you know, who, who loves more, the one who is forgiven little or the one who is forgiven much? And you say, well, the one who's forgiven much. You know, you, you put your hand into, into hot water, but it burns more if your hand's been in cold water first. And when you have really been uh, just in the pit of despair, uh, hope, even in its smallest glimmer, means so much more. And to have not just sort of an uncertain hope, but the sure and certain hope that this is not what the Lord wants, that he wants to restore you, that he does love you, and that he hasn't actually abandoned you, even though for all intents and purposes, you, you are fairly hopeless. It's you are hopeless in any context apart from him. Mm 
And then with that grace, um, you, repentance takes on perhaps a, a different sort of feel. Uh, you, you still lament and you still, you still feel terrible, but in the same way that we now confront our sins, not with this overwhelming sense of, of dread and regret, uh, certainly perhaps regret, but not with this over some overwhelming sense of dread as in if I screw up, it's all over. There are no second chances, you know, or, or something like however you want to phrase it. I'm going to screw that up. But that there is forgiveness with the Lord. It's the reason that we can get up and start each new day anew and not just collapse or ask the mountains to fall and fall upon us and hide us. And then taking a look at your situation in 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 a complete and honest sort of stock and in the fifth chapter, say, you know, Lord, this is where we are, and it is because of our sin, but we trust that you will restore us, and we pray that you would come quickly, you know, and and that sort of movement in the text from, from somebody looking at their situation and being in complete terror to realizing that it's their fault, to turning back to the Lord, and then having this this new understanding of their circumstance and hope moving forward is a movement that that I would hope all of us uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit come come to have uh, hopefully without having to actually endure what they endured at the hands of of the Lord and his agents in Babylon. Again, very, very well said, and I, I really love the way that you're just drawing this whole book together to see that movement through the book. One one more question, at least on my part, and you're you're free to bring out more introductory material. But it's it's a question I normally ask toward the end, but I think it it fits here at the beginning. Thinking about the Book of Lamentations as a whole, how is the Book of Lamentations going to preach Christ to us? Uh, at first glance, and especially in the first couple of chapters, it's really hard to see, um, because you're you're being chastised. You know, Israel's being chastised, even if they are, you know, just realizing sort of this or whatever. Um, I I think that it's easy to see when you do take a look at the book of a whole, because you have this this really, um, you know, this chapter three that, you know, is about this, you know, this redemption. But what do you what do you do sort of in the first two chapters and how do you see that? And I think it begins by asking a very simple question. Who is speaking? And that's a different question than who is the author. Um, you know, the author is the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit or, you know, Jeremiah or whatever, but, but who, who in the text, who is the one that is speaking? Um, and I think, uh, I think we have to say that it, Jesus is the one who's speaking. You know, Jesus weeps, he laments over Jerusalem in, in the Gospels. Um, do you think that that was the only thing he said? You know, that, that one little, that was the only thing he said, the only thing he thought of, the God of all creation. Or do you think that Lamentations was not also his lament, you know, for Jerusalem even then? And this is when, you know, we get to poetry having layers or prophecy being for now and also for the future it's allowed to do those things. And so, you know, in this text, we, I think you have to look at, at every, everything that's being said here. And you have to realize that uh, Jesus uh, is the one speaking. And uh, if this doesn't blow our mind too much, he's, when he is at least upon the cross or taking our place, it's also about him. 
for these are the things that he endures and and in a sense the hope that he has but he's doing that in in our place and so jesus really takes both sides uh of this relationship he's he is the one speaking uh in a sense he's the judge and the one pouring out judgment he's also the one being judged as he takes our place you know and the one who is restored as he's resurrected you know in in our place so if you if you really want to see Christ I think I think it's that that lamentations is not only him speaking but him being spoken of it's not only um the the journey that we we go through to uh to be brought back to him but the journey that he goes through to bring us back to him yeah again I I think that's very well said and we'll we will see that best by reading the text which we will be doing any before we begin with the first part of chapter 1 pastor Linnell, any other introductory material things that we've skipped over that we need to know before we jump into the book um no not at this time let's let's just hear what god has to say all right so we are reading lamentations 1 verses 1 to 11 that's the first half of the first poem in this book How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe, and there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. That was Lamentations 1, verses 1 to 11. Pastor Linnell, I appreciate that comment you shared, I think, from the Roman Catholic commentator about the text just assaulting you. That that certainly happens here in these first 11 verses, and it will continue to happen. You can, I mean, it draws you into the text so that you feel the loneliness of Jerusalem, that you feel the the pain that is there. We've got about three minutes before we go to break here, Pastor Linnell. Help us to get started into those first couple of verses. Um, 
you you can read this as Jerusalem mourning for itself, or we're going to take the approach that that I suggested that we read this as as Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. There was this really interesting painting at an art show, and as you walk from left to right in front of the painting, it begins with a young girl, and as as you move, the texture of the painting or something changes, and by the time you get to the right side, uh, that very face has aged into a 90-year-old woman. I, I want you to imagine, you know, if you, uh, if you have kids, that you are immortal, you will never age, but your children will. And seeing them when they were born and as they grow, and then as they continue to get old until they are, they are 90 some years old and they're, and they're dying. And you might think how wonderful I get to see my child's whole life, but I, I, I couldn't I couldn't imagine uh, how devastating that that must be. And, you know, this aging process, this getting old, like, that's not the way things are supposed to be. Adam and Eve were not supposed to get old and die. They were supposed to, to be, you know, young and live with the Lord and be in this wonderful relationship in the garden forever without sin. Like, that was the idea. It, it is incredibly painful as a, a you know a parent to watch you know this sort of thing and the lord is our is our father and he loves us so imagine what he must feel like to see this and so you have this in jerusalem in her youth you know and and just the the joy of you know her growing up and the relationship and everything else and now it's almost as if she doesn't even know you and you just sort of have to watch as she wanders around you know in this helpless sort of way in the street with no one to care for her. All of her friends are, you know, are gone. She has nothing left and no one to take care of her. And now she's just sort of a beggar and struggling and she can't even think straight. She doesn't even hardly remember that. Like that's devastating. And and this is the way that it begins. And you can see that in sort of a way that is, you know, a punishment or not. But even then in those opening lines, if you see it from that perspective, it's tragic and it's hurtful, But but you can't, why would you even care about the widow? Why would why would that matter to you, unless you really did love her? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it it begins with this tragedy. But the only reason that it's a tragedy is because the one who's speaking cares. And the Lord certainly has shown his people that he cares. We'll continue to see that as we read the book of Lamentations. We're talking Lamentations chapter one with Pastor Sean Linnell today. We'll be right back. Please stick around. What does it mean to live the Christian life? Reaching out in mercy to our neighbors, receiving our Lord's gifts in worship, and proclaiming His truth to the world. The Lutheran Church Extension Fund comes alongside churches and individuals to help them live out this beautiful Christian life every day. This year, we have a ripe opportunity to bring Christ to a hurting world. Discover the role you can play in this great work. Call 800-843-5233 or visit lcef.org. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is August 13th, and we are studying Lamentations chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 with Pastor Sean Linnell of Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, prior to the break, you were taking us into that opening image there of the Lord watching his people as a widow, completely lonely, just having, because he loves them, he is mourning over them. And I think the image that you use was imagine that watching your children grow old as, as you just kind of sit there and the, the devastation that that might cause you. You know, the image here is this idea of a widow. And of course, the Lord is, is still alive. He hasn't died, but his people, his bride, that's another image that the the Old Testament and New Testament both use for the people of God. They've left him. They've deserted him for these other lovers who have turned out to be no comfort at all in their greatest time of need. And I think that that image of the marriage between the Lord and his people adds to the mourning, the sadness that the Lord experiences as he's watching his people wander about now in the midst of this destruction. Right. And I think this gets into sort of the the layers of how you see things. And it's a very Jewish way to like read through something once and just really buy into the theme that you're reading it through and then go and read it again and start with a completely different sort of theme or point of view and then read through it again from that perspective. Um, You know, it's probably coincidence if the Lord does such a thing, you know, but there's these five poems here in Jeremiah and these five discourses in Matthew and Mm. You know, but in reading it in a similar way, you're you're supposed to like, you know, read the introduction, read a discourse and read, you know, the conclusion, the passion, and then read the introduction, read the second discourse and read the, read the passion. So, you know, as you, as you read through, you know, you read this from the perspective of, you know, the Lord who's, who's watching this, you know, his child or his beloved, you know, she weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. You know, and the Lord says, you know, how I long to comfort you, but you would not. You know, the reason that you have no one to comfort you is because that's that's what you wanted, in a sense. You know, and that's that's got to be terribly painful. And so you you look at this this painting as a widow, you know, and you can see this as a widow. She's a widow because the relationship between her and her her husband or, you know, Jerusalem and the Lord uh, is broken, yeah? And you read it through from that perspective, um, you know, where it's where it's this sort of heartache and look at the sufferings and this is a terrible thing and it doesn't need to be this way. But then you can go back and you can read it again. And like you said, but she has, um, in a sense, married her herself off to false gods. She's treated the Lord as if he was dead and gone after all of these false gods but these false gods have now abandoned her. And so in that sense, it becomes a little bit less sympathetic and a little bit more of a, you know, a cautionary, not, not exactly mocking, but how lonely sits the people that was, or the city that was full of people and how like a widow she has become. Look, you, you used to have people in you, right? People that would come from all over to worship your various gods and do sorts of things and see the greatness, but how like a widow you've become. What about all of those people that you've married yourself up to? For truly, I say that you have had you know, how many husbands, and yet you're married to none of them. And so, you know, you, you go through this thing. You, you, you who were like a princess have now become a slave. And so the tone is very different if you take it that way. And which one is it? Uh, I think you're supposed to read both. I don't think you're supposed to read it once. I think you're supposed to read it through each time. And, and there's a different emotion. And by the way, 
uh, people are complicated and relationships are complicated. And you can be angry at somebody over the things that they have done while at the same time hurting for them. You know, um, if you've if you've ever been in a relationship where you really loved somebody, but they cheated on you, you know, like you're allowed to be angry about that. But at the same time, you really do care about them and how terrible and conflicting that must be, um, because the the pain that is being caused, you're not doing that. They're doing that by their choices and these sorts of things. Um, and so um, you're supposed to read it through multiple times, I think, and see it, you know, that way. You know, Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude, and she now dwells among the rest of the, the nations, but finds no resting place. Jesus says, come unto me, and you will find rest, right? All her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of her distress, and the road to Zion mourns, for no one comes to the festival, and all her gates are desolate. So we talked very much about the Lord being the one who is speaking, but what if we, what if we take the perspective of uh, the Lord in our place? And this, in a certain sense, then speaking about Jesus as he is taking our place and suffering for us. The road to Zion mourns, for none come to the festival and all her gates are desolate. And part of the point of crucifying Jesus outside of the city, you know, in addition to fulfilling prophecy, is that everybody who comes and everybody who goes, they pass by what? You know, and they're there for the festival. They're there for Passover and then, you know, and, and everything else. And this is part of, you know, the objection to having that inscription over his head, the king of the Jews, is they're like, look, look, there's going to be people coming from all over. They don't really know what's going on and they're going to see this and it's going to be very confusing. Maybe, you know, what's written has been written. You know, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted and she herself suffers bitterly. You know, her foes have become the head. And so as you read through, you can, I think you're supposed to take all of these little glimpses and things that, that foreshadow and things that look backwards. You're supposed to read it from the perspective of the Lord who mourns. You're supposed to read it from the perspective of the Lord who is, um, in a sense, uh, not exactly mocking, but, but a little upset. And you're supposed to read it from the perspective of, you know, Christ who is actually suffering these things you know, in our place. I think one of the interesting things that we end up getting to, though, and a conversation that we need to have is that in, in Lamentations, uh, this is not, it's not simply that the people are mourning the consequences of their sin, but they are mourning God's wrath at their sins. And uh, let me let me explain that a little bit more. If I, if I tell one of my children not to touch the stove because it's hot and they touch the stove, I'm not punishing them, but they're going to regret doing it. Yeah, it's why I told you not to do it. On the other hand, if my children do something that I tell them not to do or they steal or whatever, the consequence is a direct result of my action, my, my wrath, right? Which sounds very heavy, but really we're talking about God. So it's okay. You know, but, but there's a difference there sometimes. And, and as a, you know, as a, as Augustine once said, or Augustine, for those who are fancy, uh, sin is its own punishment. There's a reason that God tells you not to do those things. If you go out and you break the sixth commandment all day long and you end up with an STD, 
God did not afflict you as he did the Egyptian Pharaoh and his harem. That's why God told you not to do that, among other reasons. But in this case, in this case, Lamentations identifies correctly that these things are not simply that their society fell into decadence and decay and then they were overtaken, but their society was really doing just fine, except for the fact that they were, they were sinning grievously against the Lord, disregarding his warnings and calls to repentance, murdering his prophets, and thus the Babylonians did not come simply as a natural result of history and the tumult of the nations, but as agents of the wrath of God. And they are lamenting not the conquering at the hands of the Babylonians, but their destruction at the hands of God. And this is an important thing to, you know, to note, because the solution to that if the solution, right, if the problem is the Babylonians, then the solution has to do with how do we deal with the Babylonians. If the problem is we did, you know, this and, you know, whatever, then the solution is we need to fix this, you know, politically or whatever. But if the problem is you've sinned against the Lord, then what's the solution? Well, the solution must rest with the Lord. And so that, you know, you, you have repentance and then you trust in God's grace, right? It's by grace alone. Mm -hmm. but, it, but it brings up, I think, an interesting question for us. Because as we're reading through Lamentations, we're supposed to be reading this and applying this to ourselves and to our lives and lamenting over our sin and, and being terrified at the prospect of God's wrath on account of our sins. So when is it appropriate to say that the sufferings in my life are a result of, you know, just being in a broken world? When do we say that the sufferings in my life are a result of me making bad choices? And is it ever appropriate to say that I'm suffering because the hand of the Lord is upon me? And how do you tell the difference? What do you think, Pastor? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the question. I mean that and that that is that is the challenge. How how do I know? I mean just as as you're you're talking about that, I think you've you've certainly rightly identified the the issue at hand in lamentations and we talked about this several places in the book of Jeremiah, particularly toward the end where the Lord is speaking to those foreign nations around the people of Judah and he's telling them of their coming destruction and he makes it clear mm -hmm. that all the things that are happening are not simply you know accidents or coincidences of history but they are his action within the history of the world executing his judgment against those who have sinned against him now we don't have that word from the lord like in the same way that Jeremiah had it in the 500s BC so, I mean, one of the passages that comes to mind, and this, I guess, is my one of my go-tos in a situation like this, is from Luke 13, where Jesus is met by the those who want to talk to him about the, the Galileans whose blood was mingled uh, by Pilate with the sacrifices. And Jesus says, do you think they were worse sinners? Well, you better repent or you'll perish. And then he adds his own example. That, in, in a, I guess, uh, maybe this is, this is how I, I often think about it. In a case where I don't know... Am I suffering right now because I did something that was stupid and that's the consequence of living in a sinful world? Or am I receiving a punishment from God 
sometimes it, it, within the context, I don't necessarily know what should I do. I should probably repent because there's something that I need to <laughs> repent of anyways. That's at least one way that I've, I've thought about the situation in, in my own life and in, in pastoral practice as well. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I also like, uh, the one that you pulled out is, you know, it also says, uh, for there's now no condemnation right. right under the law for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if we're, if we're going to take a look at, uh, say the, the Babylonian sack of Jerusalem and the temple, um, in, in that sort of sense, the Lord was chastising a nation and there are some eschatological, right? Some, some eternal things that are at stake that are bigger than any individual. But when the Babylonians come in, like the idea of chastisement is that it turns a person to repentance. Yeah. Um, but in this particular case, as we're looking at the Babylonians coming in, I'm pretty sure that there were thousands upon thousands of people for whom repentance was not an option because they were put to the sword. And so there's, there's a little bit bigger than sort of this individual kind of aspect going on. But I mean, to take the other side of things, you say, well, certainly we don't have the word of the prophet like they did back then, but there's a reason we don't have prophets anymore anyway. It's because we have the Bible. So can we really not say that the Lord has not spoken when you can open the Bible at any point in time and look in it and see the warnings of the Lord against sin? Mm. And so I think I think that conversation, I'm not saying that I, I think that that's the case. I just think that if we dismiss it too much out of hand, um, the devil is really good at making arguments from Scripture, even though he doesn't use Scripture appropriately, right? Right. And we are probably a lot less... Uh, uh, able, at least on our own, to stand than Jesus in the wilderness. Thanks be to God, we have the Holy Spirit. Mm. Um, and so, so in this case, you know, I think what you what you came to is actually uh, really the right answer, which is, um, does it matter? Because the proper response is to repent. Whether the Lord is making this thing happen or whether it's the, you know, I'd say the natural, but whether it is the, the direct consequence, the direct result of my sin, which is the Lord told me not to do that. And there was a reason either way. Now what? Hmm. Repent, right? Repent. And there is grace for you. There is, there is forgiveness and the Lord is not angry. And even if it is a chastisement from God, take comfort and that the Bible says that the Lord chastises those whom he loveth. The idea of a chastisement is not the same thing as a punishment, right? It's the idea is that it is meant to turn you back around to him. It's not that he's angry and he's trying to pour out vengeance or wrath in that particular sense. But the whole point is that you turn around. So turn around. I think the danger that we get into is that in these particular circumstances, and this happens a lot, and it's it's really devastating for me as a pastor who who loves the people that I care about to hear things like this. Um, it's really it's really dangerous and it's really devastating when people take the position that as soon as I learn the lesson that God has for me, this thing is going to stop. Hmm. No. No, that's not how that works, right? You say something like, "Well." You know, I asked the Lord to teach me patience, and so these things are here. And as soon as I learn patience, then they'll go away. <laughs> if only. <laughs> you, right? You've never had kids. Um, <laughs> that's just—it's just not the way. It's just not the way that that works. Um, we live in a broken world, 
and there are lots of terrible things that happen. Mm. Some of them are a direct result of our actions. Some of them are a direct result of the actions, the sinful actions of someone else. And some of those things, those terrible things that happen are just because we live in a broken world. God didn't send cancer to infect you because he was mad at you for something. And your cancer's not going to go away if you just figure out what God wants. He doesn't make deals like that. I'm not saying your cancer is going to do this or that or whatever. I'm saying that that's not how that works. But it always works this way. That as we repent, we receive forgiveness and grace from the Lord. And indeed, his grace and forgiveness is, is always there, you know, and he always desires to shower it upon us. You know, just don't push it away. Um, and... And this is, I think, really what Lamentations comes to and what they come to understand. Because they spend these first two chapters like really feeling and understanding the depth of their own depravity and the Lord's anger towards these things. But they do come into chapter 3 where the Lord's redemption and his forgiveness is present. But just because they they realize it and, oh, oh yeah, we were bad. Hey, I'm sorry, God, I repent. Now what? Like, does the exile immediately end? No, it doesn't. And they come to terms with that also in chapters four and five. Because in chapters four and five, they are still, they're, they're acknowledging this terrible position that they're in. But they're able to endure it now with hope. And so in these first two chapters, you really don't get that, though. I mean, I, I don't think you do a whole lot. Um, but they do start to turn to the Lord. I mean, this is going to come in next week when you get to the sort of the end of the chapter. But if you even take a look at the, at the last portion of ours, would you read that last verse, verse 11, for us again? Sure. Verse 11 says, All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Right. Now, this is hardly perhaps, you know, the most obvious sort of call of repentance. Perhaps it would be, you know, something like, you know, oh, Lord, I've sinned. Have mercy upon me, you know. But, hey, you know, they'll, they'll get there, <laughs> you know. But, but what are they doing? In, in the very first and foremost way, who are they calling out to? They are calling out to the Lord, and hey, baby steps, at least we're talking again. Because previously, they weren't. They were killing prophets as opposed to having a conversation. So this is a much better position to be in, right? We're making progress. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just saying, the same thing happens at the end of verse 9 as well. You, you have a, a prayer there as well. Oh, Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. Which isn't, there's maybe not the, the confession of sins that you're, you're wanting to hear right there. But again, they're, they're doing the right thing in that they're talking to the Lord. They're not simply just complaining about all the bad stuff that's happened to them. But they are beginning to throw themselves upon the Lord and his mercy. And that's where, you know, I think Christian lamentation is so very needed that it's it's just it's so much more than like whining. I think we may be prone to think of this as whining, but when we see the people, Jeremiah, and then I mean, you know, all these ways of looking at it, when we see it being given to the Lord, I think that's that's a really important point to emphasize, not only here, but as the book progresses as well. 
It really is. And as you come into chapter two, I, I think they they do start to turn around and say things, you know, a little bit more, oh, the Lord's wrath is upon us. Because in this one, they're like, oh, yeah, God, look, we're afflicted by our enemies and everything else. And, you know, and the Lord's like, good. I'm, I mean, I'm glad that you're turning around and you're finally turning to me that you have nowhere else to go. But do you, do you really understand what the problem was? Like, do you understand why we're in this position at all? They're like, yeah, because the, pe- the the Babylonians are terrible. He's like, no, you should think about that some more. And so in chapter two, you get a whole lot more sort of um, what we might call sort of repentant reflection about their sin. But um, but again, I think, you know, like you said, you're right. You're, you're finally turning around and talking to the Lord. You're having that conversation and the like. And sometimes, sometimes that that is, it is very much the case that those things need to be stripped away. And so in a certain sense, and, and this is almost terrifying, but you, if, if you trust the Lord and you're looking at your situation and you're a little unsure about where you are, or maybe you know exactly where you are, but you know you don't have the strength to come out of your, your, this hole that you've put yourself in, like it's not an unchristian or an uncommon prayer to ask that the Lord would strip those things away from you. And if he says yes that's that's hardly in a sense wrath that's him helping you but that really is sort of a a a perspective that only comes out of faith you know that the lord would would tear these things out of your life um uh even if those are things that you there's a part of you that kind of like your sinful nature that likes but that he would tear those things away from you so that you can see those things you know more clearly because you can't escape them by yourselves you know israel when when the lord is when the lord does this like is there really is there really any hope that apart from the lord's divine intervention that they're going to turn around i mean goodness even you know uh even even the kings that that kind of turned things around a little bit like they weren't great they were just good in comparison you know, so if the Lord doesn't do these things and, and provide this this hard reset, there is no hope for them. And he knows and he always knew that was going to be the case. And um, and in a sense, then and this is this is kind of bad, but. But in a sense, then it becomes it becomes his mercy that he does these things, but not because he's pouring out wrath upon you. Right but because that chastisement is designed to turn you around and he really does love you, there is grace waiting. You know, the, the idea that like hell in a particular punishment or something that would be part of God's mercy, there's some weird Calvinist theology that teaches garbage like that, but, but that's not what we're talking about. In our lives, when we have terrible things that come our way, we should actually thank God then for the opportunity to rely on his grace and to receive his mercy. For as Paul says, when I am weak, what am I? Strong. Right. And that's, I mean, anybody who's hearing that apart from faith is going to say, what an abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it really is something that, you know, we, we can only hear through faith because we do trust that the Lord has our, our best interests in mind. And also we're looking forward towards an eternal goal. We're looking forward toward an eternal life and the resurrection, which is to come. So what is this world to me? 
I have learned to be content in all things, as Paul says. And then what does he do? He lists a whole bunch of really terrible things generally. Yeah, he also lists in plenty, but also in lack. And he lists those things. And so he says, you know, I can, I can do or perhaps endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so even this, even the destruction of the temple, even the exile into Babylon, the Lord's people will endure because it's not that, you know, the Lord has abandoned them. He really hasn't. If he did, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And in your life, when you undergo really terrible things, no, the Lord hasn't abandoned you. You can see it clearly in his word. You have the hope and resurrection of eternal life. But even more than that, as you pray to him, you wouldn't be having this conversation if he had. When you have trouble, when you have doubts, when your faith is under assault, when you're wondering whether or not you believe because you get up in the morning and you're like, man, I just really don't feel it. It seems like there's Christians out there that are a lot more passionate than me. And Lord, I feel like my faith is failing. Yeah, you know, you should pray that and you should definitely turn to the Lord, but take heart because if your faith was not there, you wouldn't care. It wouldn't bother you at all. You know, the Holy Spirit is indeed at work in you. And, you know, I should probably quote a hymn at this point, but I'm, I'm going to quote a contemporary song to make everybody upset. Um, there's this, uh, this casting crown song where they say, uh, I'm not holding on to you. You're holding on to me. And really that's, that's true. That in the midst of this despair, the temple is destroyed, the city is sacked, the people are let off, only the poor people remain, all the rich and well-looking people have been taken away. It's just us ugly ducklings. And yet, in the midst of it, a remnant remains. The Lord promises to restore. The Lord has not abandoned his people, but there is hope that the exile will end, and more importantly, that the Messiah will come and that the exile of all of his people will end when he returns and raises the dead. Pastor Sean Linnell is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska, helping us today with Lamentations chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Pastor Linnell, thanks for being our guest today. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Lamentations, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the app. The open mic feature allows you to send up to a 60-second message to us. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.